You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. We hope everybody is having a uh, safe and wonderful election day, uh, in all seriousness, though. We do hope everybody went out there and voted. Uh, it's so important, uh, and part of the reasons why all of us service members uh, do what we do and chose the life that we did, because, well, it's to give people the right to vote and to keep our democracy strong and safe. And so I'm telling you things you already know, but it bears repeating again in these troubling times. Uh, let's just make sure that uh, we're all setting the example and continuing to take part in the democracy that we choose to defend because it is so, so important. But beyond that, also take part in supporting the Hazard Ground by writing us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts because, well, those ratings are so, so important to us. It helps grow the podcast, and hopefully we can continue to grow this Hazard Ground community. Can't say it enough. Thank you guys so much for giving this podcast so much support. Uh, I continually get blown away by the amount of numbers and the amount of people who listen to this thing. So uh, let's keep it growing and keep it moving as we uh, continue into 2021. Don't forget to follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, all the ways you can listen to the show. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You know the website, hazardground.com. You can do it on your laptop, your iPad, your smartphone, whatever it may be. It'll take you right to the Amazon app or Amazon's website. When you click on that button at the bottom of the homepage, you can do all your normal shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. We donate it right back to some of the charities featured here on the Hazard Ground. So you guys continue to support us that way, and we'll continue to support the charities and foundations that are so, so important to the veteran community. Now that I've done all the heavy lifting, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a retired 06 colonel in the United States Army. He graduated from West Point, spent 24 years in the Army, had multiple deployments overseas, including Iraq and Afghanistan, both before and after 9-11. He currently works as a consultant in the Pentagon and also spends a lot of time working on veteran suicide and preventing and mitigating veteran suicide. He is Mike Jason joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Mike, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. No, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, so a long military career, uh, <laughs> and as we started discussing before uh, you know, we started recording, you act, your whole family is full of a long That's list right. of military careers. So uh, this is sort of your bloodline, if you will, uh, and—, and you know, you and I came into contact via Twitter, but this is something that you are still very passionate about. You consider yourself a steward of the profession of arms, which I think is a great way to phrase it, because even though you ta have taken the uniform off, this is still something you carry with you every single day. And I think that's kind of the way it should be. You know, we talk so much about transition uh, and just because you're physically taking the uniform off doesn't mean you stop. You have to stop being a soldier, so to speak. That's right. And it's it's also about sort of defending the norms and values of the profession. I mean, we've We've inherited so many of these traditions, you know, whether you go to the hand salute, you know, we all learned basic training came from armored knights, you know, opening their visors. These are all things that matter. Uh, and these are all things that are a part of our ethos. Uh, and just because you hang up the uniform doesn't mean you can't you can't continue to champion it and live those values every day. Yeah, and, and especially given the polarizing sort of times that we're in, you know, I feel like we are the, the, the people who still understand those values come before political party, politics, or whatever else it is that is out there, whatever cause is there, those values that we, we lived by, trained by, and sort of fought by, you know, are, are still with us every single day. 
That's right. If their values, they don't, they don't, they don't change. I mean, we all did duty, honor, country, or integrity. You know, the army has their seven values. These don't change. You know, whether it's it's being truthful uh, or being or civilian control of the military, which is also a norm. uh, You know, respect, uh, leadership, treating people with dignity and equality. These are all things that if we if we champion them, if we believe them in uniform, we still believe in them in, in in the civilian world, and we we. We may come at it from different parts. We all have different tribes. We grew up in different parts of the country or world in many ways and have seen different things. Uh, but but we, I hope the shared value, not unlike the greatest generation you know, 50, 75 years ago who rebuilt the, the country after the war, we, we can come together from, from potentially different angles but really get down to, to brass tacks and solve hard problems. And I think that's what the, the veteran community is still capable of doing. Hundred percent. All right. The the military started for you back at West Point. So how and why did you join? Yeah, I'm going to go farther back. You know, I grew up overseas. So I was born and raised overseas. My parents are expats, uh, and so so we were there. So I was in Europe as a, as a kid. Uh, my parents were not military, uh, but all all of us brothers were born there and raised and to the point where we even stopped speaking English at home because you know when the parents told me when when the kids. Uh, speak a different language, you end up you end up picking up what they're talking about. You know, the kids speaking to each other. So, so I was in Italy at the time, and in the seventies and early seventies, you know, European memories are very long. So, in Europe in the seventies, World War II for them was yesterday. I mean, it really was. It was still visceral. They were still reconstructing entire blocks that had been knocked over by the war, bombed. The damage was everywhere. Uh, I had a neighbor of mine. She was a farmer lady in, that lived down the street. She had a glass eye. And of course, I asked. And she told me that a German soldier had shot her in the head and a bullet had entered her eye and exit. I mean, this is visceral. Wow. This is like <laughs> – this is real. You know, my, my little brother had – we had Italian godparents and the father was a carabinieri, the equivalent of the old guard that protected the king. Well, when Mussolini takes over, this guy's arrested and sent to like a prison camp. I mean, these are people that I met as a child. But more, more to that was because we were the Americans. Everywhere I went, all the time, they always thanked me for my country. I learned, you know, my first taste of chocolate was an American GI who gave me an MRE equivalent at the time, right, or a CRAT. I mean, they they remember us like we were the liberators, and and it. So I didn't grow up like thinking about superheroes or Batman. It was the American GI. I just knew. I always wanted to be a soldier uh, and a U.S. soldier. You know, I saw Audie Murphy dubbed an Italian, you know, to hell and back. I mean, it was, you know, the third ID patch. Like, I wanted to be that guy. And so we moved back to the States, and my mom had grown up in New York. Both my parents were New Yorkers, so she always told me about West Point. And I come back to the States. First thing I do is I join the Boy Scouts, go to high school, join junior ROTC, do all the – and I just throw myself into being the best American I can be. You know, like the full born on the 4th of July, you know, you know, it was ethos and the academy was the was the path. I mean, that's where I, I knew I wanted to go. Uh, and so it really it really begins uh, kind of in the ashes of World War Two as a little American boy who who is is the locals are just so impressed, so thankful that I wanted to be one just like that. Pretty amazing. I mean, that that feels like patriotism, right? Uh, and it's funny because yeah. I, I was having that discussion with somebody on social media the other day that, you know, uh, patriotism side is, is, is different now. I, I don't know if it's dead, but it's certainly different now than it was, 
you know, certainly when you were younger, but even you talked about earlier, the greatest generation, like that's a different level of patriotism that I don't know that we sort of communicate and express the same yeah. way anymore. I mean, what is it, right? Is it chest thumping or is it, you know, how do I describe my experience as a, a patriotism when I didn't set, forth, set foot on American soil until I was like 11 years old? I, I didn't even know what America looked like. I had not been here. And yet I knew enough of those values, or at least I was so exposed to, to the foreign world and what they thought of us from the outside that I was so proud of it and so wanted to be a part of that solution and wanted to be you know, I can remember being in the Balkans and, it, you know, they had just had mass graves and ethnic cleansing. And there I am, like trying to trying to help. Uh, and, and in Iraq, the same in Afghanistan, like I still had that kind of naive, childish impression of like, hey, I'm an American. I'm here to help. Right. Uh, but how do you is that patriotism? I mean, what is it and how do we define it? Uh, and how do we look at the things that are not necessarily perfect and right? And even our own history and, 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 and go forward from it and learn from it and not, not think that that's not patriotism in its own way. All right. So let's get back to the academy because it's still a lengthy yeah. process. I mean, when you were going there, did you study about it? Did you know what you were getting into or you just sort of felt like this was the best way to get to where you wanted to go? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, when I was at West Point, there are people that I remember the cadets debate amongst themselves. Oh, I'm going to take engineering. So when I get out, I have a cool job. I mean, I majored in army, you know, I, I was a military history major and you guess what I studied world war II European theater, right? Cause I lived it. I grew up in it. And, and so I was fascinated by it. I knew the places, I knew the locales, I knew the people in many ways and I dove into it and it, and it created a foundation for my professional, you know, being, uh, and then all the, the professors that I mentored were all, you know, combat arms, had been company commanders or battalion commanders. Uh, and then and then all the guest speakers. I mean, we had Hal Moore come to talk to us, Gerald Galloway, Colin Powell. I mean, this was a time where you just when you can just suck it in uh, if you really choose to like anything else. It's as much work. It's only enough work if you do it. There are folks who go there and and sort of kind of do do what they can or grease by and. Uh, and then there are folks that just live it. And, and I felt the power, again, I mean, call it naivety. I'm, look, I, you know me from Twitter. I'm a romance, a romantic. I'm an idealist. Yeah. It's the way things ought to be. Uh, and and uh, I, I fully bought into it, whether it was the honor code or the values of it. Uh, to me, they, they were timeless and uh, romanticized, but, but I bought it. And, and I, I went out in the army that way, thinking that way. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, I, I have remarked that people don't talk that way anymore. And, and it's it's from that movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage when he's sitting there yeah. talking about, you know, the founding fathers and what they were trying to protect. And uh, Diane Kruger, who's playing across from me, you know, says people don't talk that way anymore. And, and Nicolas Cage says, I know, but they, they should. They think that way. Uh, and, and sort of that lore, that romanticism, uh, I, I think, is part of the patriotism that I feel like is absent now because our our first reaction isn't romanticism it's reactionary and you know vile and yeah. anger and everything else and maybe it's social media that is that has gotten us to that point but you know as you said there is a certain romantic nature because we talk about war in poetic terms all the time we do yes. i mean it's you know even to this day we still do it for those of us who have lived it uh, and survived it and, and have come back and in you know hopefully as close to intact as possible war still has a very romantic quality to it yeah, Dolce at Decorum Est, poor Pacher Mori. I mean, yep. uh, you know, right? I mean, how you know we we lost classmates, we lost friends, and 
we went to their funerals and we bawled and hugged each other and sang, you know, songs and, 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 and comforted ourselves with, with those romantic terms. You're right. I, I, is it, is it, is it the Twitter sphere? Is it the Facebook? Is it the need for the hot take? You know, but when, when did duty honor country, when did honor get an asterisk that says, well, for these political gains, I'm just going to completely lie because that's now completely acceptable. And, and, it, and it's not, you know, duty. When is duty no longer acceptable? You know, put an asterisk on it, you know, because of of loyalty to my boss or I mean, we all face these in honor classes at school. And then you go out to the real world and it's like, well, let me again, let me put an asterisk on it. You know, your your commander is fudging the data on USR or the reporting procedures. Do you do you stand up or do you whitewash it? Right. We, we, we learn the ethical dilemmas at school. We live them. And we take it to the real world. I always like to say, look, the world is imperfect. I'm not that stupid. But I think you should be able to to live honorably and ethically. And then when you do hit that obstacle and you stray from it, you know exactly where you went and why. And you come back. You mm-hmm. know, it's like a road. Yeah. You have to take a detour because these conditions force you to – I had to compromise, but I'm going to come back to the main road. That's the way I look at honor. There are times when I'm not proud of what I did and I know why. But I came back and I look back and I know exactly every one of those detours that I might have taken. And they're not that many, I hope. Yeah. And, and I think, we, listen, everybody who serves long enough is, is confronted with an yeah. army value here or there that they have done wrong. I mean, that yep. you're not human. I mean, nobody expects us to be perfect every time. I don't think that's the challenge. I think the challenge is to recognize where you have strayed, understand it, atone for it, take responsibility for it, and, and change and move forward. I think that is more of this, the, the measure of understanding how to live, quote, army values, as opposed to trying to get to some nirvana or perfection that, that doesn't exist or is unattainable. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's good that you can you can express that and, and let people understand that that's more of the goal. So and not be cynical about the values. Like the right. values are the values. And it's okay that you've had to compromise or you're choosing this moment in time to, to go a different direction, but the values are the values. And we can't be cynical about the values, especially leaders cannot be cynical about no. the values in the public sphere for their current, you know, their current moment in time. All right. That's so you, damaging. Absolutely. hundred percent. You graduate from the Academy when, and uh, yep. what's next for you? So 95 and I do the, the, the armor basic course at back at Fortress Knox, uh, which is now of course moved to Benning. Uh, first assignment is Fort Hood, Texas. Ah, uh, yeah. My first assignment as well. Yep. <laughs> First Cavalry Division, uh, Second Brigade, uh, Second Battalion, Twelfth Cav, Bravo Company. I take over Second Platoon, uh, and there's, you know, there, that's a funny story there too. Uh, if you're familiar with West Point, those listeners that are, uh, mine was definitely the PL 300 platoon. Uh, it was uh, all kinds of all the issues you can think of that you hear about in the storybooks. Uh, I arrived, and my platoon sergeant uh, was uh, was a spitting image of O.J. Simpson. Uh, in my tank platoon, out of 16 guys, it was uh, one uh, Asian-American, me, and then the rest are African-American. And um, a platoon sergeant looks at me and goes, so you're the new Gilmore. And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, your platoon's called the Plantation. Uh, so that's that's uh, day one in the Army. Uh, now, the platoon was amazing uh, right up until the point where uh, then we got deployed. No notice deployment to the Middle East. We thought Saddam was coming over. Had to leave one of my guys behind, the the uh, Korean American uh, uh, 
platoon sergeant's driver. Uh, and then uh, t- because he was getting court-martialed because he was involved with a drug gang in Houston. So it's funny because all these Fort Hood stories are coming up now. So I leave him behind, and we deploy to Kuwait. That was my first deployment. Uh, and then we come to find out he'd been found guilty, uh, but the Army allowed him to go home to Houston to say goodbye to his family before confinement. And then he and his girlfriend were driving around Houston, and another car pulled up on a traffic light uh, and sprayed machine gun uh, bullets into the car and killed both of them. What? So, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that is my, uh, uh, first, so that's my first platoon. We haven't even, we haven't gotten to the rest of the jobs. <laughs> my first assignment here. That is crazy. Um, what sort of challenges do you feel like, you know, as you, as you're starting off your military career, uh, you know, yeah. you, you had this notion, this idea that the military was the way to, to put this patriotism on full blast when, when you actually get to the ground though, it's a little bit different. So can you bridge the gap between those two. Yeah, it, it's a bit different. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, and, and hood's a huge place and it's kind of, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of personalities. Uh, you know, I got to deploy early. I mean, it wasn't like the deployments that we would see post nine 11, but it was a big deal. It was a no notice. It was pack your stuff. By the way, we weren't even on the DRF or, you know, the division response force. Uh, but for some reason we went and I had, you know, I was in the middle of tank services and I've got guys all over the place, non-deployables. And I meet most of my platoon literally like the week of we get on the plane. Uh, pretty amazing experience. But it reinforces a lot of things, a lot of, you know, that 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 when the Army wants to, you can you can make things happen. The standardization of training and skills. Um, you know, then I, I meet I meet these NCOs from all over all over America. I mean, really. You know, the academy is what was at the time, especially 88 percent white, you know, mostly middle class, mostly male. And you go and you get to the real army. Uh, and, and it was just first off, it's just an, the amazing diversity of our army. So I've got uh, my two wingmen, uh, Staff Sergeant Slay and, and, and Staff Sergeant Thomas. I mean, one's a, a son of a sharecropper from South Carolina, you know, who grows up in the fields. Uh, and, and the other one is, is from, is from the really deep inner city, uh, from Detroit, but both of these guys had served in Korea and Germany and they bragged about how they could, uh, pick up the ladies or order beer in three to four different languages apiece. Uh, something that in, you know, in hindsight, I lament we've lost a bit in the army. Uh, well, we can come back to that later as a, as a segue, but really the worldliness of these NCOs, the experience and, uh, it, and it, I, I think it, it kept it kept that burn. And although you saw some of the things, you I started getting my first kind of ethical dilemmas. Again, that that reporting, you know, the pencil whipping. That you start seeing those things. You start seeing whether they're the the shortcuts to values and 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 how you have to and and where where the real world and and where your idealism meet again that reality. Uh, and, and you learn more and you mature as a, as a leader. No, I mean, very well said. Um, and it, those formative parts of the early part of your career, you know, I, I, I'm still doing this. I'm 21 plus years in. And uh, people always ask me about, you know, if I could change anything in my career. And my response always is, I wish I was a better lieutenant. I, I wish I spent more time as a lieutenant giving a rip about things that I care about now. And maybe it was just immaturity. Maybe it was just uh, a general cockiness 
that I thought I was smarter yeah. than everybody else. And, and again, this is a pre-9-11 world when uh, I spent most of my years as a lieutenant. Maybe there wasn't a sense of urgency that there is now about the profession of arms. But uh, I, I wish I, that I was I was better. I, you know, in me, it was a bit of the opposite. Um, I think because at the academy, I wasn't like a superstar. I, ca- I came into my own my junior, senior year, you know, finally hit my stride. But, you know, I graduated maybe in the top third of the class at best and at best uh, the first two years were rough uh, I was trying to I mean because I came in with all this idealism but it was hard uh, I wasn't doing as well as I wanted I wasn't a superstar you know I was surrounded by superstars but I go into real army starting with the basic course and I'm like I'm hitting my stride I'm, I was just all in it uh, 100% you know I wasn't going out with the lieutenants and you know I had a girlfriend at the time but it was kind of like it was, I was all in and in hindsight, I don't know that I had, and it's easy to do in Colleen and Fort hood. Cause there's nothing around you. That's interesting. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I mean, Austin was, was a bit far away to go out and party. So we did it, but not, I didn't do it very, a lot, very, so I was all army. I was, I was the nerd. I was the tool. Uh, and, and it, but in hindsight, I kind of wonder if I missed, you know, coming out of the monastery of the Academy and going into being a lieutenant, <laughs> You know, did I miss some I miss some growing lessons? You know, I don't think I was mature about dating. I think I, you know, look, I'm divorced. I married early. I don't think I knew how to choose a partner. I, you know, uh, it, it was um, I don't I don't think I was very worldly about things mm-hmm. uh, early on because I was all army and I was a damn good lieutenant. But I wonder if I was a good man in 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 totality interesting, at the time. So interesting juxtaposition, we, really. Yeah. You know, which and and then and I look back at my lieutenant buddies who were out and dated and met different people and learned lessons of life and traveled more. I didn't travel a whole lot uh, and had a different a different base of of, uh, of a different foundation than I did. Where were you on nine eleven? So nine eleven, uh, I was in Germany. I had just come back from Kosovo, and I gave up my I took my headquarters company of First Battalion, Thirty Fifth Armor, to Kosovo for seven months. We come home in uh, June, I think it was, take some leave and start doing changes of command. So September 10th, 2001, I give up the guide on. Uh, and then the 11th, I'm at home in bomb holder in my apartment, packing up because I'm flying on the 12th to Seattle to my little brother, who's a, then a Navy, uh, Navy lieutenant. Uh, he's now a captain uh, for his wedding. Uh, so that's, uh, I'm sitting there in my boxers and t-shirt packing my suitcase having just given up two and a half plus years of command uh, on my first day without, you know, I'm not going to get any phone calls and I'm watching it uh, just live shot by shot in, in complete shock. Uh, and then of course the next five, six days I'm, I'm uh, banging around airports all over Europe trying to get back to the States um, working that. Did you feel like at the time we're going to war? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I, I did. Um, I remember uh, watching it. It was uh, all, all I could repeat was uh, you, you remember uh, in Platoon uh, Barnes when they find that um, when they find their soldier who'd been grabbed by the MVA and he's dead. And all he can say is the, the mother efforts. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that. That is literally all I could say out loud to myself for about three hours. Um, it was just it was it was so visceral. And like I knew uh, I knew I knew things were going to change dramatically. When do you finally get back to the States? 
so I think I got back. I missed the wedding, uh, you know, and I got back, I think, like a week later. I uh, saw my brother for a night. We had dinner together. They went off on a honeymoon. They were driving somewhere. Spent about three or four days in sort of post-9-11 America in Seattle, uh, which I'd never been to. Uh, we're not – and because uh, he was at Whidbey Island at the time. That's why the wedding was out there. So we just kind of walked around the city, just sort of stupefied, uh, and then went back to Germany. Uh, and uh, now I'm out of a – you know, I'm out of a critical job. I'm the assistant S3, really waiting to PCS. Um, and, uh, as the rear D commander, while the unit goes off to gunnery, uh, at Grafenvier, um, and then, uh, my next job is, uh, I had been selected to go to Italy again because my language to be an aide de camp to a general officer, uh, so down in NATO. And then, uh, from there we were immediately, did you uh, ask helping. to be an aide or you were selected to be an no, aide? No, branch, branch called me. They found the language, they found a language on my records, uh, and said, Hey, we, you know, we got to put somebody up for this. Are you interested? And I never, in my wildest dreams, I never thought as an armor officer, I would get an Italy assignment. Uh, and so I kind of jumped at it. Uh, and it was pretty amazing because what, what was happening in 0102 in Italy and NATO, especially on, first off, my boss was the J3 basically for all U.S. forces in the Mediterranean. So, and, and, and commander of the army forces as a dual hat. So we had, he had, we were still in the Balkans. I mean, we had thousands of troops in Kosovo, Bosnia. So we had all that operation still happening. I mean, third ID units uh, were in, had to be pulled out of the Balkans to prepare for the invasion in Iraq at this time. Uh, I also had to work, you know, Turkey, that whole issue with the opening the northern front for the Iraq invasion, uh, working that, and then trying to get the uh, 173rd out of there. Uh, for the jump into northern Iraq, so that's all happening on while, while I'm an aide uh, with my boss. Uh, so pretty interesting time, and then of course work in the alliance. Who, who the alliance responded, you know, through Article Five. We are the only country that invoked that article, and the alliance came and provided AWACS and 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 uh, fighter uh, cover and air cover in the United States immediately post 9/11, and of course. Motivating our allies or helping our allies to get to Afghanistan, which is way outside of the mandate of NATO. So it's really interesting, an interesting uh, view of of what friendships and trust and partnerships and alliances can do, even when the completely unexpected is thrown at them. Uh, I really became a fan. So that was just a a, a, a seminal experience for me. All right. So how quickly after all of this? Um, do you find yourself hearing the words Afghanistan or Iraq? Um, you, you mean for me personally, like yeah, when I start, yeah, as far as start uh, going, the, yeah, when when you first heard yeah. that you have a chance to go. So uh, you know, as many many off, former officers or current officers will sympathize. So I'm I'm post company command and I commanded early. So you know we you know I, in general predictable careers as a combat arms guy. Uh, you 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 have this huge gap now to fill until you become you know a major in an S three or XO of a battalion. Right. You know, for many of us, it was like, oh my god, what am I going to do? I hate the army. Many guys get out. Mm-hmm. So uh, I did this A job, but it was only it was only a year or so. So then I applied and got the the, the joint staff intern gig in DC, uh, and I was the first cohort that had a master's attached to it. So I, I went was the first group to go to Georgetown. So I did a year at Georgetown studying public policy, 
and then immediately thrown into the Pentagon as an intern. And that's where I land. And it turns out uh, I, I got grabbed by my old brigade commander, and I go into J5, which is uh, strategic plans and policy yep. in a brand new, brand new shop that had not existed before, created after 9-11, called the Deputy Directorate for the War on Terror, and basically responsible for the national strategic plan for the GWAT. And there's like 10 people in it. They do Guantanamo policy, detainees, WMDs, and the strategy for the war on terror. And there's like 10 people, including me. Uh, and it was it, it, incredible because I get in there and, uh, and my boss puts me on uh, writing the, ideal, the third major component of the fight for the war on terror, which is countering ideology or extremist ideology. Uh, and so we, we I, I'm teamed up with this really nerdy. Oh, six. Say, boy, you, you were a nerd, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. Right. So I but mean, the I army kind of forced, me, right? forced it on you, man. I mean, so, so I get teamed up with this, uh, with this Colonel Fayo, Middle East Fayo, who was a finance guy. Uh, oh God. God, I forget his name, but he was like, he had been in Jordan and the Middle East half his career fluent in Arabic. And he's like, I got to spin you up. Like, you don't know Jack. I go, well, I'm, you know. And, and so he's, he, this guy has me like studying the Quran to understand Sunni Salafism, <laughs> Al Qaeda mentality. So I'm like knee deep in this stuff. Then I remember, I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, my 06 boss, my former brigade commander, has me write a white paper. And he's like, uh, define, like, there's debate about whether we should call this thing the war on terror and, and it was uh, basically something like define terrorism. Uh, what's the what's the def who defines what and and define war? So I'm like researching the United Nations and NATO and our Constitution and looking for international law. And I write this white paper and put it on his desk. I don't think anything much of it. Right. This is how things work in the Pentagon. So one day I go to get my Starbucks at the Pentagon. There's like five of them. And I'm walking back with my coffee and I see my 06 boss. Uh, who later becomes a three-star, my former brigade commander. And he's like, hey, did you did you write that paper? I go, oh, yes, sir, roger that. He goes, okay, talk to me about it. So I go, well, sir, I discovered humma, 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 humma. And I'm walking with him. When we end up in a small conference room, and he's like – and he's pointing – he kind of nudges at me to, to go over here in his corner. And uh, I'm still explaining this to him. And then some, some petty officer, Navy, walks in and is like, stand by. And he looks at me and he goes, too late. Stay here. So I sit there. And in comes the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the J-2, the J-3, the J-5, my boss's one-star boss, and me. And what, and I'm on a side table with the note-takers, and what, what proceeds to happen is an entire discussion about the efficacy of war and terror and what it is and how we use those terms to create a national strategy. And I'm just like, I'm a captain. What am I doing here? Yeah, so, seriously. That's my Pentagon story. That is unreal. All because you wrote a paper. Yeah. That's crazy. And that's how it is, you know? And, and uh, you know, anybody was like, oh, you know, I, it, it's fine. I want, I want to plug this because there's a lot of folks, even when we grew up in the Army, like, I did 25 years in the Army and never served a day in the Pentagon. Great. That just means you don't understand corporate. You know, you, you I'm a muddy boots guy. Well, that's where the big stuff is happening. And if good people don't rotate up there and put brain power to it, then, then that's how we get really bad policy and really bad plans. Yeah, I mean, th there's there's a sense of downloading the information you have, right? I mean, uh, yeah. the best and and let's put it in simpler terms, right? The best thing that people in combat can do 
after coming back from combat, instead of going back again, is to go train people who haven't yes. been through combat. Like, you have to pass that, that, you know, we got into such a cycle where it was deployment, you know, come home, rest, you know, cycle, yep. you know, red, the old red, amber, green cycle, you know, get ready to go again, you know, a year later or two years later, whatever it is, well, that we never took the time to, to, to pass the information along. We only did it through second and third hand information, not first hand passage. That's right. Well, a marshal's lieutenants in World War II, you know, Eisenhower, Bradley, Ike, uh, or Patton. I mean, he he had put all those guys in a schoolhouse and raised them in a schoolhouse, you know, after the war. And and we missed that. Look, my biggest regret in the army is I never taught. I never was an instructor. I never was a professor at the academy or an ROTC PMS. Like I never got to do it because I was always told you got to be operational. You got to be in the fight. Yeah. Or you got to be making things happen. I was either in a tactical unit or back in a Pentagon in an office with a three behind it. Uh, and and and, it, and I never got to pass it on. And and the, the 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 things that make you happy in the army, the happy moments, are that mentorship is pulling those those lieutenants or captains or majors in a corner and over a beer or coffee or cigar and like telling them all that's in your brain. Um, now I got to find it a little bit. I got to find that sweet spot after retirement and writing uh, or doing op eds or even through t- through social media, but. But it's not the same as having a dedicated time in your career and your path. And I think that goes for any profession. You know, I, I, I think whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, like rotating through somehow academia or teaching, I think is it, first off, you really inculcate and solidify what you know, but you get to pass it on. And I, I wish our society valued that more. And I wish our profession had valued it more for me. No, and I've told this, uh, said this a couple of times on the podcast that, you know, as a battalion commander, I routinely, uh, once a quarter, or if not, you know, biannually, made sure I I brought all my lieutenants in to the same room and sat down with them for an hour and said, guys, this is open, open season. Just talk. Just tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you're seeing out there. Because, you know, I remember as a lieutenant, the only time I ever sat in the battalion commander's office is for an OER counseling. You know, or right. either that or you were in trouble. <laughs> so, I mean, and, just- and, 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 and yeah, and it can't just be about like the tank load plan or, or the, right. the movement to contact, right? right? And, and I'm too many guns. Well, that's war fighting. Well, you're going to get the war fighting. You're going to get the reps, but the life lessons, the ethical dimension, there's so many right now that you could talk about, you know, like I, there's so many things that they're seeing in the public sphere that deserve yep. a conversation and honest assessment and discussion. Uh, with with your officers uh, and and in in the real world, and and the thing uh, and, you forget it, about lieutenants, yeah. Mike, is sometimes I mean most of them are just they're still kids. They're twenty one, twenty two, yeah. twenty three yeah. old kids. You know, I mean, and I hate saying that word because they are adults and they have responsibilities. But come on, I mean, we all know what we did at twenty three. We're not going to do at thirty three. We're not going to do at forty three, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just you know that that's life. To to include our company commanders, which quite right. frankly, I look back at myself at. 26, 27 in charge of 350 people. And, and the, the hubris that I had at the time, I mean, just uh, what I didn't know. And ha- I was not a father yet. I mean, and, and I've got grown ass men and women, you know, in my organization dealing yep. with really complex problems that I had not even encountered yet. Um, yeah, there's a lot more, a lot more we can do. All right. So outside of being a nerd and being forced to do all these <laughs> things, um, you, your first actual deployment into combat post 9 yeah. was when? 
So, uh, no, that's right. So I'm sitting there in J5, and there's a reason I, I got to that. So I'm sitting there as a, as, a, as, a, as a joint staff intern in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon, doing all this great you know, intellectual work, uh, crafting policy for the GWAT. You know, when the first request for forces uh, comes across my desk, and it's an email from my buddy who I went to the academy with who's a fellow intern, and, and, it, and all, his email was entitled, Pack Your Bags, Boys. And I open email, and it's the request for forces from CENTCOM for hundreds and hundreds of advisors for the Iraqi army. Uh, and then within 30 days, Branch calls me, uh, and they're like, hey, you know, we're put – I didn't even – I think I got, a, I got an email that says, here's your orders. So from the Pentagon, a bunch, a bunch of us got tagged. It had to be briefed all the way to the chief of staff of the army, as I recall, because we were kind of the special intern program. But a bunch of us got tagged in a huge move to find – uh, in in the TDA army or in the institutional army leaders to go forth and put together these teams to advise the new forming Iraq army Iraqi army 2005. Uh, so I uh, this is like no one knows anything about it. Uh, we I get orders to report. I, I think on Halloween or so I report to Fort Carson, Colorado, with my beast squad mate Bill Taylor, who's an, another intern. He and I get tagged together. And we show up at Carson to a, a repo depot type. I mean, it might as well be World War II, run by a reservist airline pilot who didn't want to be there. I don't forget that. I don't remember that guy's name, but oh, my God. So it's really a mobilization center for reservists. And here's a bunch of a mostly active duty guys, um, NCOs and officers. We get thrown into these condemned barracks, and that's it. And uh, I, I'll never forget it because Bill and I, who had been on a joint staff, uh, grab everybody and we go, everybody give me a copy of your orders. And we sat in a long, narrow hallway of these old barracks with these orders on the ground of 40 to 50 soldiers and officers and tried to come up with, based on report dates and number sequences, who might be on the same team and and made teams. Uh, and, and that's it, what we did. And I, I think the training was about two weeks had a couple ranges, a couple of those training lanes we used to do, you know, the IED lane. Oh, stop, call the nine out line. And I had exactly an hour and a half of Arabic. Uh, and then we were shipped, we were driven from Fort Carson to Dallas on a bus uh, and then put on a plane and then landed in Kuwait. And then uh, a week later, uh, um, here's your Iraqi battalion. And oh, what- by the way, you're not, sta- you're not standing one up. They've already got their own battle space and you're advising them. And what year and month was this? So the, I arrived in Iraq. I think it was uh, November or so of '05. Okay, I was I was there at the exact same time. Yeah, um, and that's interesting because it was it was. You talk about the teaching aspect, right? Um, yeah, this was teaching, but just different. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was a crash course in empathy. Uh, yeah, and it was it was a a whole lot of uh, levels of patience that you didn't know you were supposed to have. Uh, going into the whole thing, um, but you know the the, the idea that uh, this is what you were doing. Um, did you get a sense of? And again, I hearken back to what you thought about it as a young man of what a soldier representative was supposed to be. Did did you feel like I'm getting the raw end of this deal, so to speak? No, no, I, I don't think I did. I mean, uh, look, I was excited to go. I mean, it's it's oh five nine eleven's been uh, you know. Uh, four years at this point. And, uh, you know, like everybody else who's an idealist and, and you want to get your, your bang on, you know, you want to, you want to get out there and, and, and hit, hit, hit the field. 
at this point now, uh, a year before, I had lost my best friend and roommate uh, who was killed in Tikrit as a company commander. So, you know, the war is is progressing, but no one knows where it's going. It's bad. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're going to do this and we're going to make a difference. And again, I'm, I'm a student of history. So whether it was, uh, you know, the the uh the the kmag in korea the the greek advisors in world war, post world war 2 uh the uh, you know the oss uh vietnam advisory group uh i mean this was this was like we've done this before and it's a critical mission i also in the back of my mind i'm like oh, we're going to get hosed career wise because the army has never gotten this right uh but whatever it, it didn't matter as much as going over there um, and then being there, it's like, look, uh, how many times have we all seen Lawrence of Arabia? I mean, I, you know, it's literally like, you're doing it, you know, you're, you're, you're there, uh, and, and, uh, living, uh, with the Iraqis in their barracks, eating their chow, going on missions with them. Um, and really uh, the incredible autonomy. And I'll, I'll come back to that because it's a double-edged sword. You know, there was a lot of freedom and a lot of autonomy, um, in, in what we did. I didn't have a direct boss giving me op boards telling us what to do. Uh, that is both good in some ways, liberating in some, but also um, I think extremely stressful because ultimately um, you are putting the lives of your people, you know, there's something to be said morally when you're being ordered to put together an operation and, and where you're just wholesale, whole cloth, making it up on your own. And, and the, the moral baggage and weight that comes with that. Um, and having to decide whether to go do something or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I faced that the same or similar dilemma as, you know, it, on that same deployment. I was thrown into the, the SF community, uh, and there's very little oversight there. It was just, here's yeah. your mission, oh go, God, yeah. go figure it out. Uh, and there right. were a lot of times. Write a con op. Right. There, there were a lot of times where, uh, <coughs> and, and again, I would write a con op, but it would be like on a whiteboard with the people yeah. in front of me. No, no one no one looked and asked, let me see your paperwork before you roll out. And it was just like, okay, you're going to do this? Thanks, let, let us know when you get back. I mean, it, there is some freedom in that, but there is also a, an incredible amount of responsibility. And, and, and frankly, looking back on it, Mike, I, I don't know that I ever really, at, in those times, bothered to look at that responsibility. I just looked at it very sim- you know, pragmatically as a mission. This is where point A is. This is where point B is. Get from point A to point B and then get back. Uh, but, you know, it, it, fortunately, you know, while stuff happened to us, we didn't lose anybody um, and, and you get through it. But I don't think you ever really sort of take stock in that, which you talked about, that level of responsibility, because had something happened um, that was worse than what did, I, I clearly would have different feelings about things. Yeah, I, I think uh, a couple incidents. I mean, so as you remember, the EFPs were getting big. Yep. Yeah. So I, I start out the tour north of north of uh, Baghdad in the Taji area, and it was kind of it was a. I mean, we, our Iraqis were definitely taking casualties, uh, but we were generally unscathed. You know, I was with Bob Woodrow from ABC News when he got hit, so that was a complex ambush on Route Tampa. Uh, you know, there was there was snipers that were killing our guys. I mean, it was just it it was you know. We had we had some mass executions that we stumbled onto. I mean, it was it it was not easy easy, but the level of risk for us was we were you know we were the IEDs. We were generally you know losing tires, getting shredded tires, but some but we were it it was it was it seemed to be tolerable. I guess we moved to Baghdad, and uh, it was one of those that together forward 
the Iraqi surge in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And, oh, only two units responded. All the Iraqis said they wouldn't go. Well, my mind went. Whole, I, we moved our entire brigade in less than 48 hours, and it was pretty amazing. And, and we occupied basically all the areas around Sadr City. Now, all of a sudden, it's a different threat. Now, there's Shia, uh, Jaish al-Mahdi. Uh, they're targeting my guys. I mean, we have a V-bit inside of an assembly area. Uh, it, we, we've got EFPs, which we had not had to contend with. And it's it's every day there's a plume of smoke. And you remember those EFPs. It'll take out a Humvee and kill damn near everybody in the truck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it started just getting really – like all of a sudden – you know the feeling, right? You plan an operation – or you plan a patrol and you're, you're amped up and you can't sleep that night. But the minute you get in the truck, man, the Z monster hits you, you're totally relaxed. You're mm-hmm. with your guys. Yep. You've got the lull of the truck and it's hot and you're like secure. And somebody plays some music, maybe over the intercom, you know, it's supposed to start cracking some jokes, open a rip it and you're in your element. Right. And that fear dissipates. Um, but it's th- that, calm started wearing thin and then the 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 last piece is my little brother was in in the fallujah area at the same time uh he was a marine nco and he got he got hit uh by an rpg and there was a period of about 24 hours where i didn't know if he was alive or dead and it 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 really affected me to the point where my team sergeant was like sir sit down we got it you just focus on getting news on your brother and and don't don't worry about anything. I got it. And that was the best thing. You know, you know when an NCO looks at you and is like, we got this boss. And that's exactly what, what top did. And, and it, thank God. And so I think that that really hit kind of a sense of mortality in many ways. Uh, and, um, and again, so it's the summer it's EFPs and it's my brother getting injured. And, um, and, and it, and then we were all tired. We're 10 months into this tour and we kind of started arguing amongst ourselves about like why, why – and then we were we started getting more and more shorthanded because the thing about these early MIT teams is they were formed downrange. Mm-hmm. So everybody, if you were a reservist or a guardsman or a retiree – we had retirees. I had a Vietnam vet major, right? If you were called in off retirement, like your train-up and your leave counted against your 12 months. So guys started getting rotated out. So we had teams down – 12-man teams down to four people. So we're a brigade package, and we're down to like 25 guys with with covering down on four battalions and a brigade headquarters. So we were putting together hodgepodge patrols to get 12 people to go out on a gun truck, or nine people really. And, and um, you know, we had, we, we had interpreters, TCA vehicles, or, or I mean, it was and, – and we started really like, what are we doing? And we were being so cavalier about rolling outside the wire um, that that's where I think where it really um, that period of time, that summer, that last quarter of my first tour um, really still weighs on me in many ways. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, when you think about the things that still stay with you, uh, what's at the top of the list? Uh you know, there's a couple things. There's like I said, we, we, we got a call. There's that, uh, there's a time when I went out and we got a call that there was a dead body out in the hinterlands. Uh, what happened was the, uh, they had shot down an Apache on Tampa. So the brigade there closed off the entire highway mm-hmm. and the Iraqis, especially the Shia that worked, let's say North of Taji area, 
and commuted to Baghdad, you know, the people that we asked to come back and work bureaucracies or ministries, well, they had to drive into the Sunni backwoods to get to work. And so the, the Al-Qaeda basically set up checkpoints and they were stopping cars, pulling guys out, shooting them, taking their cars and then, and then setting up again. And so we, we heard something and then my commander and I went out, you know, on a whim, you know, with just a patrol with his log pack and two of my Humvees. And we started finding, you know, all these bodies freshly executed. Uh, one of them had, had my exact same birthday, uh, cause they put the ID cards on the chest. So, I mean, that, that was like, oh my, and then we picked them all up and then using the Iraqi log pack truck, took them to the local IP station on Tampa. Uh, you know, that, that one stays with me. And then I go to like feelings, right? Like feelings stay with you. Like I'll, I always riding in a Humvee, I can picture it. Like I always had this dull ache, this feeling that the EFP round was going to come through the right side door and go through my right kneecap. Like I, I, it, it's visceral. Like I, you know, I, I read stories about World War II vets or Vietnam vets that always thought there was a bullet with their name on it that came right for the forehead. For me, it was an EFP in the right kneecap. Um, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't know why. Um, and uh, so there's, there's, there's a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of smells, a lot of crazy nights. And then, there's one I wrote about that I want to. I, I always want to tell this story because it talks about you know war criminals or American values and idealism, and it's my classmate Bill Taylor. I wrote about it for task and purpose, um, and and we were we had moved to 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 Taji or to Baghdad, and uh, the brigade was there, and they started taking casualties like a lot, and they captured uh, two suspected Al Qaeda or insurgents, uh, and uh, it's late at night. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, we always kept one of our, one of our advisors w- with an interpreter at the Iraqi talk, uh, 24 seven, you know, just imagine a lone American with an interpreter in the middle of an Iraqi base 24 seven pulling CQ basically. And we all rotated that duty. And, uh, the guy calls and he's like, there's a mob here and they've come for these two insurgents and they're going to kill him. So, uh, Bill without hesitation grabs his patrol cap and his pistol, his nine mil and uh, one of our interpreters and runs to the talk. And, uh, and I go to our little operations center and our little advisor building. And he calls me on his little Iraqi Nokia cell phone. He's like, dude, it's bad. And they've, they've got these two Iraqi insurgents, alleged insurgents, nearly beaten to a pulp. And Bill is standing over them. And at this point, the, the enraged Iraqi Jundi mob is about two to 300 deep. And they want to kill these two uh, detainees. And the only thing keeping them is Bill standing there with his nine mil out, you know, standing over these two guys at 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I'm trying to get, you know, an ambulance. We got to get an ambulance. We got to get them to the nearby American base. So I get an Iraqi ambulance lined up, but it's, you know, it's away. And he, you know, he is everything standing between that mob and these two guys. But, that's what the Americans do. And the Iraqi soldier and, and advisor, actually, I'm, I got to correct, the advisor was not there. It was the Iraqi talk that called us and said, come help. They called us. They called the Americans uh, because they knew we would do something. And right. he did. And Bill's standing over these guys. And, and, and look, it could have been easily these guys could have been disappeared. And then we get them to an ambulance and Bill jumps in the back of the ambulance, these two guys. And the ambulance is driven by Iraqis and they get lost and they drive off the fob and they're in 
they're in outside of the Iraqi fob near Sadr City, outside of the American base, and they drive up at one o'clock in the morning to the outer gate of an American fob outside Sadr City. And uh, he calls me again on his cell phone. He's like, "Dude, uh, I'm." He's got no body armor on. No one else. He's the only American. He's with an Iraqi ambulance with these two detainees in the back standing outside an American base. And he calls me on a cell phone and I'm talking on the radio to the command center to go, no, that's our guy. He's an American major. Let him in now. He's got two critically wounded detainees. I mean, that's personal courage, values, duty, protecting detainees, prisoners of war, because that's what we do. Uh, And that's another moment that sticks with me. That's an incredible story. Uh, I mean, it, one like I've never heard before. I mean, honestly, like that is uh, uh, hard, hard to envision. Um, and all those times we used to train on the uh, mob outside the base scenario, which I always yeah. chuckled at because I never thought it would actually ever happen uh, to actually hear that it did happen to somebody was, you know, uh, that, that yeah. a revelation in and of itself. Uh, OK, so your last deployment was in Afghanistan, correct? Right. That's right. And. You had a command there as well. Um, yep. At this point, you know, you are 20 plus years in, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, just about. Okay. So just about. I, I, you're going through this last deployment. I mean, are, are, do you realize this is the end for you? I mean, I, I know you talked about, again, I referenced when you were a kid. I mean, 20 years was always the goal. That was always the finish for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think at this point, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I was uh, very you know, lucky to, to, to do well and get a, get the command I wanted. And, you know, uh, for my sins, they gave it to me. Um, so, uh, at this point, uh, I, I'm not sure where it's going. Uh, but certainly some of the shine, the idealism has come off. Like, don't get me wrong. The command was amazing. My troops are amazing. Their mission was amazing. Their sacrifice, uh, I, you know, I, t- t- the, the proudest, you know, really the proudest, you know, period of my life and my professional career. But, you know, I, I, Afghanistan was uh, was no was a no notice mission. I mean, I had less than than ninety days, and I think I found out in November. Uh, so uh, I ended up doing. I gave my guys. I was able to give my guys some leave. We still went to an NTC rotation. Just my battalion cr- invented just for me, uh, and then we were we were we were ripped by like February seventh in Afghanistan. From and and we were combined arms. I had just certified everybody on the new M1A2 SEP tank and a Bradley A3. We parked everything, reorganized the entire battalion to look like a light infantry MTO or, you know, design, uh, scrambling squads and people, uh, retraining to the mission set, going to, again, to, to California. I mean, I didn't have half my staff at NTC because they were already on torch party in Afghanistan. Uh, and then coming home from NTC, three days later, I'm on a plane to Afghanistan. Um, so, and, and and at this point, it's 2012, and I'm just sitting there going, we've been at this for 11 years, and we are making units, heavy combat armor units, jump through their ass to go to Afghanistan with limited – You know, we had our third ID other than the Aviation Brigade. No third ID ground unit, 3rd Infantry Division, had ever fought in Afghanistan. Our division was Iraq-based, so we had no institutional knowledge. Um and like I said, the training was 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 hurry up and go. Um, and I, you know, I remember thinking like institute having been in the Pentagon at this point, going, "What are we doing?" Um, and it just, you know, so a little bit of the of the idealism, kind of like, you know, we're still 
we're still doing pickup games here, uh, you know, ad hockery, uh, which I learned as a mid advisor, putting teams together at the last minute uh, is kind of the worst thing you can do than sending trained units that are prepared for this kind of stuff. You know, I sit here and, and, and I hear you say that and I sort of just, I chuckle to myself because it's like with all the resources that the Department of Defense and the government have at their disposal, you have to sometimes wonder and ask yourself, who the hell is in charge of this? Like, who thought that this was a good idea? Like, this is how we operate it. It's almost mind numbing. Yeah, I think I literally said that to my senior raider during this period, which may be why I'm not uh, in the Army anymore. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I you know, because a, a friend of mine was a, a fellow, he was a squadron commander in a light unit, and he was way ahead of me on the supposed patch chart and in a light unit that had been in and out of Afghanistan since 2001. And he was sitting there waiting for a mission. And I'm and I he and I were cross talking. I'm like, you know, if I was a taxpayer, I'd be kind of infuriated. I just trained this unit on multi million dollars of equipment. Now they're gonna park all their crap, forget all that training, reorganize and go do somebody else's, you know, another mission. Like this is not very efficient. But you know, big army, there's lots of considerations. You never know what what you know, there's different aspects of the decision, but uh God almighty, we can do so much better. All right, so you end up calling it a career. Uh, how did you know it was the end? I, I always reflect on my uh, I always reflect on my boss's advice, the guy that I was the aide for, and uh, he when he was uh, was was uh, he tells me the story that he was on a plane with another general officer, and uh, the, he he looks at him and he goes, "Hey, I think the guy's name was a pilot, the the other the Air Force guy." It's like, "Hey, Buster, you know." when do you know that it's it's time to retire? And he says, he tells me the story, and he goes, the Air Force general doesn't even look up from his notes and completely deadpan without even missing a beat. He goes, when you start talking about it. Um, so um, I think of that because, I, I, you know, that's probably, that was probably sort of the, the, the theme. And uh, I always said, when it stops being fun, uh, I'm going to go. And when I, I can no longer do, the things that I want that I, you know, that are army, you know, then, then maybe it's time. And I also, in fairness, I had become a dad late in the game. I always wanted to be a dad. It was a huge, a huge part of who I am and what I want to be as a human being. And, and I, I wanted to be there. So all these kind of competing things, my wife has a rocket flying career. And, uh, you know, I, um, I tell anybody who joins the army, don't join the army to do something that you can do in a civilian world. Uh, go be army. Go go be in the combat arms. Go be in the motor pool. Go be on the range. Go deploy. Go be dirty. Go be tired. And I knew, you know, having been a battalion commander, alternate for brigade command multiple times, like I'm not going to get back there. Uh, and so it's 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 time to to to, to expand my horizons, and also. Look, I I want I want I could have stayed in and done thirty years and retired, uh, you know, wherever. But I I I want a two point I want a shot at two point I don't know what that is, and it may not be anything. But I want a Mike Jason two point and I want to do something else as well. Uh, and so, all those things together, it's like it's time, and and I can leave on my terms, and I'm happy with what I did, uh, but I'm excited to do other things. Those other things were what? Did you know what you wanted to do, or were you just sort of, uh, as we no. la as we joked about laughing, flying by yeah. the seat of your pants? 
No, I, I think there's uh look, there's realistic. There's you look, you gotta you gotta earn a living still, you know, you gotta take care of your family. And military retirement affords you a lot of that as a baseline. Sure. I'm yeah. extremely grateful. We have a great system. Anybody who denies it is lying to themselves. It, we have a great system to take care of our retirees. So I'm I'm very fortunate with that. Um, the, but uh, I, I looked at it. You know, you do all this exploration when you transition. There's sort of like the, well, I can do the consultant stuff. I can do the business stuff. Uh, or I looked at kind of the the heart stuff, the, the passion stuff. I don't know what that is yet, but it's like, I looked, I was, look, I was a runner up for a CEO of a nonprofit that, that worked with the military community. Uh, it was a close call. I, I, I played around on the margins and some other things. I don't know. Could I be a staffer on the Hill? Like that's where the policy is being made. Should I help a campaign? So I, you know, does that, and then, and then, uh, something fell in my lap, this consultancy gig and it allowed me, I'm, I'm keeping my clearance uh, I'm working in the Pentagon. I don't know that it's forever, but it, it allows me to stay current with kind of national security issues. But I also have the freedom now not being in uniform, uh, not being a government employee to sort of dabble in the things that I'm more passionate about. Again, I can write, I can publish, I can op-ed, uh, I can consult a nonprofit. So I, I, I work on the suicide bit over here uh, on the side uh, and, 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 and kind of I'm on the board of a of a nonprofit for Iraqi children. Uh, I can do these things now, uh, and and it fills the bucket uh, where potentially a, a regular job nine to five may not. You mentioned about veterans and veteran suicide that you're working on. It's a topic we always come across here. Yeah, on the podcast, uh, you know, there's there isn't a easy answer to how do we prevent or how do we mitigate veteran suicide, but. What is your take on it, and and where do we go? Uh, look, I'm going to make a lot of listeners uncomfortable because um, I I sat in the Pentagon. First off, uh, I if if you're in the Army now and you're using a Forcecom dashboard, uh, I'm I'm partially to blame for that. So I started developing with my battalion and my actually my predecessor in our battalion, uh, Dan Cormier, who's a commander before me. He'd started something because of uh, his battalion's decentralized operation in Kirkuk. I took it to Afghanistan, took it to another level, and really it was a, it was it was sort of a, a whole body assessment and, and really understanding individual risk habits uh, and all those kind of additive events, cumulative events that really uh, stress a soldier to, to to a breaking point potentially. So I really looked at it from that point. I started there, then I go to the Pentagon and I sit there, and for three years, three years, man, every day I read every single CCIR in the army. And I'm telling you, I've got a data set in my head. And if you look at, that means reserve, guard, active duty, family members, and civilian. Probably a 2 million person body set scattered all over the world. By a factor, it's not even close. 20 to 30 to 1, if you look at firearms incidents, they're done with personally owned weapons. So whether it's malfeasance, domestic violence, suicide, crime, accidents it's all happening with privately owned weapons so the training the all all of our gun culture at work in the context of work is really successful but us taken off duty with a privately owned weapon we are just as stupid if not stupider than than the average civilian on the outside and i think the breaking point for me and i'm getting to suicide i promise the breaking point for me was was an NCO. I think he was he was it was an infantry or even a special operations guy, 
playing, showing his new pistol to his buddy in his own apartment, negligent discharge, bullet goes through the wall, kills a two-year-old child next, next door. Oh, God. And I was a brand-new parent at the time. This is a real CCIR. And I'm just like, okay, we are not – you know, we've done – you remember what we did with motorcycle riding. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. you got to take the class, right? Mm-hmm. We don't do anything like this for personally owned firearms because we assume that we treat them the same way off-duty that we do on-duty. We do not. So then fast forward to suicide. Well, suicide. We all we had suicide attempts when we were growing up as, as lieutenants and junior officers. Remember the guy who ODs on Motrin? You know, there's the guy who hangs himself with a buffer cord at basic training and then a buffer cord fault land. I mean, I, I witnessed this when I was a drill cadet. Like it was a cry for help. The problem is the cry for help now with a firearm is 85% effective, 85% lethal. All other suicide means combined less than 4%. Now, veterans are 51% more likely to – more than 51% of veterans own personally owned firearms. Less than 20% of the regular population non-veteran does. So we own more guns. They're more effective, and we are more likely to use them. And and and, and the suicide rates have spiked 33% in like the last 20, 20, uh, 20 years. And they're going up with women. Why? Women veterans. Why? They also own firearms because it's it's so ingrained in our culture. So I'm not I'm not a repeal two way guy. I'm not a crazy person. All right. I own personally own firearms. The problem is we are not talking about the method. We refuse to talk about it because mental health is is always a component. Of course it is. But I had a suicide in our brigade. It was a, it was a, a a female warrant officer. And she didn't use a firearm. She was so dead set on committing suicide uh, that that she had it all planned out. And there was no way we did everything possible because she knew she was at risk, everything possible. But she deceived everybody because she she was so determined to do it. My I'm not sure we can stop those that somebody who's so determined, but it's the impulse. Who's got impulse control problems? Well, young males, 18 to 34. I mean, come on. Who marries the strippers? Who buys the $2,000 rims? Who buys the Cadillac Escalade they can't afford, right? I mean, we, we want young men with, with impulse problems because we want them to jump out of airplanes and go, go charge bunkers. Mm-hmm. So that's our population. The problem is you, you give it a Facebook breakup uh, or they're sitting in front of a, a bottle of Jack Daniels and, and a football game and a loaded Glock sitting on the coffee table – and that impulse is 85% effective. That's so it's impulse control with a highly lethal method. We we have to break that, we have to increase distance there. And uh, and that's the that's where we can we can find some policy space. Because again, who who among us downrange had loaded pistols just sitting on a coffee table watching a movie? Now add beer. Right. Right. Now, now, at you know, we didn't do that. We made a risk assessment. Well, it's amber condition, red condition or, you know, you, you, you know, it, and you had gun weapons racks and supervision and we counted bullets and we had, you know, we checked. We corrected each other when the weapon was on fire or safe. Right. Like, hey, soldier, check your shit. Right. Like we did all that. Well, we don't have that at home. You know, it's uh, interesting. And- I just I hear you talking and it makes a ton of sense. But I've always said, like, 
you know, one of those things, I'm more qualified to handle a weapon than any civilian because I've done it for longer, right? Like, yes, you are. And, and I feel like if there's anybody who should be walking around with a gun, it should be me. Now, I don't like my, my pistol stays in the house and it's, it's used for one purpose, one purpose alone, which is home invasion. You know, the kids have no idea where it is. They don't even know it exists. So, you know, from that standpoint, uh, I, I feel like I've taken the measures as a parent. But, you know, again, what you're saying is 100% true that the option is always there if I ever got to that spot, you know, mentally where I just didn't want to be here anymore, it's an easy out. It's a really easy out. It's super easy. It's super accurate. So the, the question is, when can maybe your spouse, your parent, your child go, dad is in a bad place and dad, surrender your gun or give your gun to somebody who, first off, who do you give it to? Who do you trust? Uh, or what if you're not willing and you're in a bad spot? Can we go to a judge uh, in a legal process and go, I-, I need this removed for a temporary basis? Just like when you as a commander went, get Private Schmedlap's rifle. And until he gets cleared by the chaplain, yeah. the shrink, and his company commander, he's not getting his rifle back. It's not punishment, but it's precautionary. You know, and, and it's incredible. And, and I mean, it, these, the system we we've used our entire military careers is at our right. disposal, and we we've forgotten so that's about these, it. That's these red flag laws, right? Look, look, this is in my family. I've got a brother with severe PTS, and it, guns are. He was a rifle instructor in the Marine Corps. It is hugely important to him, and and to many in many ways, he he has under the spell uh, that if he goes to see treatment, he will lose his weapons. I want to tell your listeners. It, this is not true. The the VA, uh, you know, benefits if you seek help, if you seek mental health. There there is no correlation to taking your weapons, except in the extreme case. And let me explain it. If you are so mentally incompetent that your VA check, your VA benefits have to go to a third party, like a ward or legal guardian. In other words, you are so incapable of handling your life that we that a court ordered appointed ward handles your business then and only then are you not allowed to have a weapon that is an extremely high bar and i would say if we don't trust you to receive a check and go fill out a prescription form we probably don't want you to have a glock or an ar-15 i mean i i think that's reasonable and it's such a high bar to even get to that look a judge has to decide that like you have to have lawyers because another person assumes your legal foundational role like you can't even you, you, you well, it's, can't it's similar to the idea of power of attorney. Like if someone is incapable is, of making a decision, they have to go to a judge to get power of attorney. It is even beyond a good analogy, but so beyond legally the power. Of, it's even beyond that. Uh, it is you are not fit to be a, a, a an adult person. You know, people have like brain injuries, uh, you know, so so that's a high bar. Um, and so anybody else who seeks PTS counseling. It's okay. Uh, so that that's that myth has got to be pounded and pounded and pounded. Go seek treatment. Amazing stuff. Uh, really, again, enlightening stuff more than anything. You know, just kind of the, the, the you know you, you hit all the right notes, and I'm I'm just sort of trying to digest it all here as we're doing this live. So it's is a lot to get to. I'm certainly going to spend some more time uh, thinking in that space because I think there is a lot of value to it and. You know, it's it's a conversation we probably haven't had deep enough when it comes to veteran suicide yeah. and what they're dealing with. And, and 
um, sort of removing that as an option may immediately see dividends in the numbers. Uh, obviously, you'll meet with resistance because it's 2020 and you can't take anything away from anybody without you know being an evil person. But again, different discussion for a different time. But I do think the premise of which you're approaching makes a whole ton of sense. Like just on, yeah. on a very basic, simple level. Um, you know, it, it, it's why you put plastic covers over your outlets for small children. It's why, you know, you put a gate in front right. of the steps, you know, where Increase you don't want your dog to go. Right. Like you just, these are very simple things that we're doing. Uh, and it almost seems way too easy. But again, I, I think you, the way you've proposed it with some of the hurdles that you'd have to clear, um, there is a check for the checking, if that makes any sense. That's right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, let's think outside the box, just you and me spitballing. Like, I'm the local VFW. I'm already having a hard time getting members. What if the VFW builds an arms room or a set of lockers and 24-7 you can temporarily surrender your weapon to the VFW or, I don't know, the American Legion? Like, these are certainly not repeal the two amendment organizations, right? No, not even close. they're, They're part of our club. Now, of course, they'd have to build some infrastructure. So what if they get a grant from the federal government that says the VFW will build arms rooms for the very purpose of a voluntary temporary surrender of weapons for veterans in crisis? I, I mean, that's doable. We, we, let's start a campaign. Seems perfectly logical. Um, and again, I, I think in the same respect, you know, the federal government does so many things for so many other citizens, whether it's food banks, whether it's shelter for the homeless, yeah. whether anything else. They provide these services and they get grants and money to be able to do it, to be able to just help people. The nature of the help really doesn't matter. What matters is, is that the, the availability exists, and yet there's no availability to exist that helps veterans who may need or may be struggling with something that, that they can eliminate a certain amount of risk from their, their lives. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and there's our generation. Uh, look, I, I've got three or f- uh, four or so suicides, uh, firearm, all firearms since I left command, uh, you know, that, 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 so they continue to impact. But, you know, through a Twitter exchange, a woman wrote to me and her father was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he came back. He had just celebrated his 54th wedding anniversary. Uh, they're out in the Midwest. He's, he's got a huge farm of his own. Uh, and he shot himself like, like last, like, like, uh, uh, like 11 weeks ago or so. And I, I, you know, that, 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 that baggage, we don't know where it comes out. Uh, but oftentimes that crisis has, has a window where, where, where action can happen. And, and, but the, the lethal means are, are, you can't come back from that. And I, and I, I, and we've got to figure out a way to increase some time to, to, to let to let things maybe get to a better place. I want to pivot uh, to something I feel like I would be remiss uh, in addressing with the audience um, because it's kind of how you and I began to interact. As I mentioned, you know, we, we linked up over social media, over Twitter, yeah. uh, in which you are very outspoken um, to, a, to, a, to a certain extent politically. And again, you mentioned before there are things out of uniform now that you can do that you weren't yeah. able to do in uniform. Um, and by no means am I, uh, you know, full disclosure, you know, again, I, I make no bones about, about where I lean. Um, but as somebody who's still in uniform, I sort of have to reserve some of my comments um, for uh, a, a private discussion, so to speak, not a public forum, because everybody knows I still wear the uniform. But that said, uh, I, I want to give you sort of a platform in a sense you know, it almost seems like, and just talking to you for the last hour plus, that a lot of this, 
may have been building up over the years, and it's sort of all coming out now. Um, why do you feel it's so important to use your platform as a veteran and somebody who is who is working in this space um, and, and sort of transitioning it to the political realm? How are they tied, and, and w- why is it so much of a, a cause of yours, so to speak? So, look, I, 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 uh, I, I struggle with all of that. I, I, really? You're, look, you're just... Your description is very accurate, uh, but I struggle with it because I grew up like you. Uh, you know, you, you officers are apolitical. We serve the country, the civilian leadership. Like, and and I took it to a, to the nth degree. So so a little bit of background. So I started high school, and my nickname is uh, Alex P. Keaton, and I'm you know my first <laughs> debate. Remember, I I moved from overseas, and I want to be super American. And I'm in middle school in 84, and we have a, high, a, a debate, and I have a thick accent. I'm learning English, but I'm, I pick – I get picked to be Reagan, and I knock it out of the park, right? And I'm, I'm – because I have idealized America. Reagan is president. It's the heyday of like the tribe, right? It's all about the Russians are bad and, and the Challenger disaster. I'm in Florida. I mean it's, 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 it's big speeches. It's romantic idealism. It's rebuild the military. It's – it's Panama and Grenada. I mean, it's 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 sort of big time, right? So I'm a natural Republican because that's our tribe, and 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 so my whole arc of political life, you know, my early political identity, it's Clinton's a draft dodger who smoked pot, you know, like that's what we think because that's kind of in our culture, and and I kind of that takes me really to probably two thousand. 2000 Bush wins. I think I voted for him. I was a Republican. I was an absentee ballot, voted from Kosovo, from Florida, and in, 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 in the state that counted the Chads. So I'm in the middle of it once again. And I'm running around in Kosovo doing KLEs. And they're like, and the Kosovars are like, what's happening with your jacked up election? I go, no, no, no. <laughs> this is the democratic process. And I'm defending our process. So Bush wins, then 9 11 happens, and everything just starts going kind of haywire. And that's when I become a little bit more senior. I make uh, I make major somewhere in here. I'm probably senior captain, and I go into the really the apolitical route and the, the whole. I don't even. I stop voting, and I stop really paying attention to it. And I go. I'm a professional, and kind of the officers really shouldn't vote. We don't pick a side at all, and I take that really for the rest of my career. And I'm one of those guys that didn't vote, which I regret. I didn't exercise my own citizenship because I bought into that. So I go from hardcore kind of GOP or Reagan kid to to a weaning, you know, and then kind of like the independent. I registered independent, but I didn't vote. And I, I pulled myself out of the parties. And then kind of so and then I'm here and it's 16 and I'm retiring and I'm just watching what's happening. And I'm like, OK, this isn't about a party. This is about the decency of what I've stood for, which I don't think has changed. You know, it's telling the truth. It's building up our allies, standing up to our enemies. Uh, it's it's those it's what what did those Italian people who witnessed the World War II and the Holocaust, who looked at me as a little boy and thanked me for my country? What America are they looking to? Because that's what I signed up to fight for. And if I'm not seeing it then I need to advocate for it. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's some stuff that's just been, we've been, I mean, we abandoned the Kurds, you know, uh, we, we're crapping all over NATO and, and the expediency with which we do it. Uh, and the, the things that we're saying when we do it, I'm like, hold, hold up, hold up. Th- th- this uh, again, 
So I, I'm not a party guy, mm-hmm. but right now, like we are headed in the wrong direction and we sure. need to have a better conversation. And yeah. look, as far as this guy is concerned, in 2012, I'm in Afghanistan. I'm sitting there chow with my soldiers. And one of our biggest talking point amongst each other, you were there, like the Joes are like, so here we are in Afghanistan. This is a forgotten war. Nobody can, all they care about is the Kardashians. That was sort of the, the litmus test for a comment for what America thought about was the Kardashians, right? Reality TV. Fast forward, we got a reality TV star in the White House and we're, we're doing reality TV every day instead of like having real hard conversations about stuff. Um, and we can both sides this all day long, but you and I both know the commander, the leader sets the moral tone. Absolutely, and and I, and and uh, well, the key word you said is, there was leader, and I don't yeah. see my, I don't see many leaders in politics in general. No, and that is a problem no. because no one is running on a leadership platform. No one's running on a no matter what you throw at me, I'll be able to fix because I know how to lead. Well, um, I don't. I, let's let's take this back. We we are not a country where one person can fix anything, right? Like, true. You know, it's the whole Mussolini made the trains run on time. Like that's not our system, right? And uh, it shouldn't be. So what? What what is leadership and what are we asking for? Because a lot of folks are very happy with his leadership style and all he's doing is stumping his chest and, and calling people bad names and they call that leadership. Some people are saying empathy or moral tone. I mean, he what can what do we want out of a leader? Uh, you know, is it personal example? I mean, there was a time when our party, as I was a GOPer for most of my life, said character, character and values matter. You know, that's why Clinton was horrible, because he smoked pot in college and he cheated on his wife. He was a horrible human being and should not be the leader of a free world. Well, here we are. That doesn't seem to matter anymore. Back to the beginning of our, of our conversation, if their values, they don't change. My values have not changed. And, and listen, I, I think that, you know, when you put it in those terms, it is apolitical, right? Like, it, it, and reading 280 characters on Twitter People can make a whole lot of assumptions about X, Y, and Z, and that happens more often right. than not. But in a long-form discussion, as we're having now, I don't uh, what I what I can misconstrued as political before. Now I understand the basis for it. Now I understand a lot more about what's the reasoning behind the things that you say or you tweet or whatever it is. But it it, it it's this discourse that yes. we don't have enough of because. Again, we consume everything in headlines and in bites and in and in you know again two hundred eighty characters. So it's like the lack of the ability to have conversations and the way we consume information uh, today is part of what is crippling this country. I think first and foremost, uh, because again, long form conversations which need to be had so often are not. So so here's my litmus test. This is what I've developed. I think in the last uh, couple years, uh, I start off with the uh, I. It's very simple. It's good faith. You know, you and I, whether we exchange or banter on Twitter, I always feel like you're coming at me from a place of good faith. Uh, oftentimes, so so I look at like Obama, right, and President Obama and some of the stuff that he did that I thought was bad or, or horrible in, in policy. And But I always look at, did the guy come from a start, did it originate from good faith? Uh, and I look at all the, the, the politicians in that way. Uh, or our leaders. And I, I think that's the, the question. Now, there are entire, uh, you know, on both right and left on the extreme sides, there's entire wings of media 
bloggers, whatever, that immediately begin from bad faith on it, you know, mm -hmm. completely. And, and so they can't be trusted, but you know, the, the question is, does it begin in good faith? And, and, and then you can go from there and you can talk about that. I, I found that a litmus test. And I think if folks, if you try that, um, and then, okay, their ideas are batshit crazy. I got it. But are they in good faith? Are they trying to resolve some uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? There's a good one. I, I don't agree with half the stuff she says, but I'm not her constituent. And she's young and, and, and energetic and has a lot to say. But I don't think she wants to bring Castro communism to America and put people in internment camps. I think she's trying to help working class people, uh, people who've been downtrodden, marginalized communities. And she's very outspoken and uses her platform. I don't agree, but I think it comes from good faith. So that's that's a method that people can so to vilify politicians, uh let's is it let's look at less the competence I got it. The ideas may not mathematically work. They may be completely incompetent. Does it begin from good faith? Let's start there. Yeah, and, and I think when we we see ideas that don't pass our own smell, smell test, right? It, it, sure. Like you said, it, this is totally crazy. Like it doesn't make any sense. I, I don't know that you need to write the entire individual off based off of one idea. I mean, it, it, it's one thing if a congressman or a senator gets on the floor and consistently spews things that are off off the reservation, right? It, it's it's another thing to have an sure. idea that a lot of people don't buy into and think it's out there. I mean, you know. I, I deal with this in in the civilian world as a as a sports talk host. You know, I, I may have a comment, a, a thought about an individual player that completely disagrees with everybody else, but that doesn't mean everything else I say is completely lunacy. You know, and, and but again, we just we we so often be are more comfortable categorizing individuals and putting them in a box, or we're assuming that one is everything, and we don't have long form discourse to really get to understand where people are coming from. And and what's reinforcing that? So you you catch that hot take or you catch that comment, and are you, is somebody? If you just watch, you know, one side of of the media argument, and that that argument or that media outlet is consistently reinforcing that this person is a communist and batshit crazy and and completely off the reservation, that 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 misconstrues again the entire body of work of that individual and but if you diversify where you're getting your information you could have a more nuanced opinion because again you might hear something a politician says and go oh my god it's completely insane but whatever but if your media content is consistently reinforcing that that person is crazy and a threat to you and your family and and validating not just validating your initial take but amplifying that take into right. something even more conspiracy. I mean, then it's like that person is my enemy. Well, and I think that's what, whether it's Alex Jones or some of the other uh, crazies on the left are doing, that's what's happening too. The, the other thing I'd add to that, you, you talked about to kind of a, a litmus test. I would tell you that, at least me personally on social media, uh, I, I have no problem saying it. I'm more right-leaning. Um, I voted on both sides throughout my, my entire adult life. But that said... I follow a lot more left-leaning people than I do right people because I don't want to choose to live in an echo chamber, Yeah, right? Like I don't need confirmation for what I believe because I know I believe it. <laughs> I don't need somebody else to tell me 
that what I'm believing is correct. I want to know what the other side is thinking. So at least I have an idea to bounce something off of and go, maybe there is some value in what they're saying. Don't that, live in you know, that. That's how I started. I, I, I started uh, reading some kind of lefty books uh, in the, in the uh, you know, I was, I come back from my first tour in Iraq. I was a little disaffection and kind of like, uh, I, I, I need, you know, I, I need to see what else is happening. And I started reading some other books and it kind of changes the angle of things. Uh, now, you know, like Bush was being heavily criticized and, but, uh, you know, I thought some of the arguments, but I don't think Bush lied. I don't think Bush was an idiot. Uh, he doubled down courageously on the surge and I thought he staked his entire political and personal and he accept uh, life on the surge in Iraq and took personal responsibility for it. I watched that whole thing up close. Like, like I thought that came from good faith. And so anybody who was like, you know, attacking him personally, I, I thought that was in bad faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's reading other things uh, that, that allow you to see that. I, look, I follow right and left and, and you got to see what's going on. You know, David French is a great one on the right. Even though he, he kind of stepped on it recently, I thought. But um, it, you you have to diversify your view, and and you're right. The long form ones, uh, when you do, you get the tweet and it embeds into into an article, you, you start getting an outline of thinking. I want to finish with this. Um, you consider yourself a steward of the profession of arms. Yeah. I'll, I'll ask you to put this in sort of context. Twenty five years ago, uh, when you started this profession. It has clearly changed for a variety of different reasons. One, just the natural progression of the way things go forward. But two, combat, uh, the length that we've been at this, what is facing us going forward. Has our profession of arms properly progressed the way it's needed to? uh, Or do we have more catching up to do? No, we have a lot of catching up to do. And it's not just that. I think there, there are two... Two huge historical vectors that were in parallel that I don't think we've reasoned with yet, uh, or maybe even three. One is the all-volunteer force. Like that had really just come into being with our generation. So the last draftees were still retiring when you and I were coming on board. They were still in the Army. So we are now fully all-volunteer. That all-volunteer force goes in the longest period of combat and war in, in probably Amer- at least American history. I, I can't go back to the Romans and, 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 and compare and contrast. But in American history, the longest period of war, and it's an all-volunteer. Third pillar, and we started diversifying at an, at an increased kind of clip, right? Like after Korea, or Korea so we, we, we finally take down segregation. Uh, 80s, we start uh, bringing women on board, and and in the last in in this last 20 years of the all volunteer army, the longest war, we we knock down all the rest of the barriers. The profession hasn't. I, I think we're still grappling with all this, and these are revolutionary concepts that I think we are still using kind of uh, uh, incrementalism to deal with when it when they're revolutionary, uh, you know. I, I think about the time. Why are we? Do we still have an enlisted force and an officer force? Like, why that? Why is that construct still valid in an all volunteer profession? Can you imagine a twenty five year FBI agent veteran 
standing up parade rest for an FBI agent with five years in. Like, who does that? You know, <laughs> like, but we still have first sergeants and command sergeant majors, you know, coming to attention for captains. I mean, I got it. But but why? But we step back and go, why does this construct construct matter? Why should we have a linear progression that's, you know, 01 to 027 and where you enter is different, but you can still move all the way up the line. Like these are instant industrial age constructs of a draft army that we haven't had. So I think, you know, after World War II, Marshall created a commission and they analyzed all of the things that really upset soldiers and, and were inefficient in World War II. That's the commission. That, that's how we got rid of riding crops and Sam Brown belts and riding boots and all that kind of elite accoutrement of, of authority uh, that, that a democratic uh, army does, should not have. And, and I think we got to have a commission like that that really explores the last 25 years, the all-volunteer arm. And, and on top of that, what did 20 years of continuous war with an all-volunteer force that's diversifying do to American culture? Or, or how did American culture affect us? Like, what's that civ mill relationship? Because um, that bears – that's a whole separate podcast as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and, and listen, I, I'm faced with some of these challenges, and uh, I, I find myself often – you default to, hey man, look, this is a standard. You know, this is this has always been the standard. This is the way we've always done things. And, and I've never been a guy in my entire military career who has always just agreed with the way we've always done things as the way we do. That's things. right. Because it's just not like I mean, you know, twenty years later, I'm still saying we still have a ridiculous grooming policy. Like facial hair matters. No, it doesn't. It, it literally has no bearing on anything anymore. But yet we're still sticking to these 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 stringent, you know, oh, my God, you have a five o'clock shadow. Like, go shave. Like, it's stuff like that where I'm just like, you know, that doesn't pass the smell test with me. But I, I, I find myself a lot of times not defaulting to the army I grew up in. Right. Like, I, I don't want to be that way because I, I, I generally believe that progress and progression, uh, it, it has to happen naturally. You know, it's one I, I use the analogy. Look. The train is going to leave the station. You can stand on the platform and wait for another one that's not coming, or you can get on the train and go with everybody else, right? Like that, that's, that's, right. that's just going to happen. So I, 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 I'm a very progressive individual in that sense. You know, I, I mean, it's when it came to gay serving, whatever the issue was, right? Like whoever was against right. it before, it's here. Like, like let's just all move forward with it. I, I can't believe we put up that much resistance to something that really didn't have really any bearing on our force whatsoever. But again, um, th- th- there's not a lot of people with a progressive mindset. So I, I do struggle with what you're saying in-, in a sense where I don't want to default to the army I grew up in and the way we should do things. But when you do something this long and you see results this long, you naturally default to, well, this is what will correct any problem. Yeah, it's sort of magic bullets. And what is such a diverse and large force of civilians and guard. I mean, the second, third order consequences of magnitude of any of this stuff is just dramatic. You know, the ACFT, you know, the new test, right? It requires oh, all yeah, this. I took it, yeah. <laughs> well, how do you get this equipment to the National Guard Armory in the middle of Montana? Like, how much money are you going to spend on it? And where are those kids who might live in a small town going to work out every single day? Like, these things matter. Uh, and so, but yeah, 100%. I, I always come back, you know. In our lifetime, in our parents' lifetime, so my father-in-law was an infantry officer, in his lifetime, 
white soldiers and black soldiers had different water fountains, and that was supported by army regulations. So we know, you know that regulations change with time and have to be adapted. And you can never fall back on, well, that's the regs and that's the standard. That's always been. Because uh, those things change and they're made by people. And we're a people business. Uh, and and we should we have to adapt, as you said. You got to get on that train and lead, or get out of the way. It's not your business. It, it is a a different podcast in and of itself. Like literally, it could be another easily hour long conversation. And we need smart people, both who are still in the service and out of the service, to be able to handle this conversation because the future of our organization and the entire Department of Defense, whether it's Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, it all depends on it. Like it, it, we have That's to right. be able to. Just like we adjust in combat, we have to be able to adjust in garrison. Whether we stay all volunteer because it's enough for now, or we have to go to a draft for some kind of incredible emergency, we want the nation to have access to the best, best talent that we can get. And, you know, we may need a draft someday. And that, that draft won't look like, you know, a bunch of five foot ten dudes who can join the paratroops. It may be I need about 5,000 coders with nose rings and gauges, you know, and blue hair because I've got to build a capacity tomorrow. So, you know, to, we have to retain the ability to, for us to tap into the best human capital that a nation can produce. And it comes from all corners and all, all sizes. Mike, I've learned so much in talking to you, man. I mean, it's just amazing perspective overall. Uh, and I thought we were going to have, you know, some sort of conversation about the, uh, to, to quote before, a nerdy conversation about the Army and your military <laughs> experience and everything else, but there was so much more depth to it. So certainly I thank you for all your candor and honesty and, and being able to share it with us, man. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's nobleman's work you're doing. It really is. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure to be with you. And uh, uh, we, let's do it again. Oh, Mike Jason, man. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You bet. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.